Okay, sorry for the delay. We had a little uh, problem, bad cable. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for Dana's hard work and study that he could help us understand better how we got your word to us in our own languages. Pray that we'd have uh, an opportunity to just contemplate what a great and miraculous work you did to preserve your word for future generations and people throughout the world and help us to learn and grow and appreciate what you've done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Textual criticism and textual variance. I've shown you that textual criticism and textual variance are not things that we need to be afraid of. They're not things that we need to be intimidated by. They don't undermine the integrity of Scripture. In fact, when rightly viewed, textual criticism increases our confidence, enhances our confidence that the Bibles before us today are accurate representations of the message that God first delivered to his people. Now, it's been a a month since we last met, so I'll begin with a, a quick review of what we talked about last time. I gave you a a definition of textual criticism. It's the the study of the handwritten copies of the New Testament for the purpose of determining the exact wording of the original, the reading which is closest to the autographs. That's what we want to know. We want to know that our Bibles are reliable, that they are accurate and faithful representations. So there are three important concepts that I want you to keep in mind as we look at textual criticism. The first concept is that 98% of the text of the New Testament is settled, regardless of which manuscripts you use. They all agree that on 98%, more than 98%, actually, a little more than 98% of the text of the New Testament. So textual criticism is dealing with that less than 2% of the text of the New Testament that is affected by textual variance. And secondly, this is very important, no major Christian doctrine is dependent on a single textual variant. I I mentioned last time uh, 1 John 5, 7 in the famous Trinitarian statement that's in 1 John 5, 7 in, in the King James. When people who are used to the King James first discover that modern translations don't have that verse in them, in them, they're horrified. Some of them are horrified. What? You're taking the Trinity out of the Bible. No, we're not taking the Trinity out of the Bible. The doctrine of the Trinity is well established in the New Testament. The doctrine of the Trinity is not dependent on that one verse in 1 John 5. So keep that in mind. No major Christian doctrine is dependent on a single textual variant. And finally... God's word is preserved in the textual variants. Emmerhard Nestle, or Nestle, however you want to say that, however you want to pronounce that name, he's the the Nestle, or Nestle of the Nestle Alon Greek New Testament. 
he talked about the tenacity of textual variance. And what he meant by that is that once a textual variant comes into being, it never goes away. Because once a textual variant comes into being, the next copyist copies that textual variant, and then the next copies, and the next copies. And meanwhile, the other textual variant is copied by other copyists. So you, you have both of the textual variants, or all of the textual variants. They never go away. So he talked about the tenacity of textual variants. I showed you the example last time in, in Luke 10.1, where some manuscripts say that Jesus appointed 70 others to, to go ahead of him. He appointed disciples to, to prepare the way, to go in advance. Some manuscripts say 70 others. Some say 72 others. Now, scholars may debate on which is the original reading, 70 or 72, but there's one thing that they don't debate on. They don't debate that one of those two is the original reading. So the word of God is preserved in the textual variance. It doesn't go away. So we don't have to worry that part of the Bible has been lost and we can never reclaim it. No, it's all preserved for us. Another thing that I mentioned about the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, and this chart illustrates that, the New Testament, as an ancient document, is better preserved than any other document from the ancient world both in terms of the number of manuscripts and in the closeness in time of the copies to the original. For some of the other documents from the ancient world, see if I can get my pointer on here. See, we only have a handful of copies. We only have a handful of copies. And down here, you see, it says 5,366 for the New Testament. Only, only a handful were some of these ancient documents. Even, even at the most, we have like 100 copies. But here we have over 5,000. Now, that number is constantly increasing because that, that number there that you see, 5,366, is from 1999. The most recent figure that I've seen is more than 5,800. So new manuscripts, well, they're, they're old manuscripts, but they're constantly being discovered. And so that number is constantly increasing. And in terms of the closeness of the copies to the originals, with some of these documents from the ancient world, there's more than a 1,000-year gap between the earliest copies that we have and the originals. With the New Testament, in some cases, it's just a matter of decades between the originals, the original autographs, and the copies. So even if you look at it from a purely secular point of view, the New Testament is way more reliable than any other document from the ancient world. And of course, when you add into that the fact that God has providentially preserved his word, there's, there's really no comparison. I, I talked about the different kinds of manuscripts, the papyri, the unseals, the minuscules, and the lectionaries. The papyri 
are papyrus is a, is a, a paper-like writing material made from strips of reeds. The earliest papyri that we have are from the second and third century. So they're, they're very close to the originals in time. Now, papyrus is a, is a fragile and very perishable material. It doesn't last very well. And so most of the papyrus, papyri that have come down to us have come from dry climates like Egypt. I talked about the unseals. Those are the documents that are written in all capital letters with no spaces between the words. Papyrus didn't last very long. It, it, it quickly rotted away. So they began to use, in, in the 4th century, uh, manuscripts of the New Testament began to appear on vellum or parchment, animal skins. That was in, in the 4th century that those unseals began to appear. And then the next step was in the 9th century, minuscules began to appear. And this is more like the writing that you're familiar with, with spaces between the words, not in all capital letters, and there are punctuation marks, which there weren't in the unseals. And the other um, type of manuscript selectionaries, which are just passages that are read in a, in a church service. So it's not the entire New Testament, the entire Bible, it's just passages that were read in the church service. I also talked about text types, or text families. The different manuscripts are grouped together depending on similarity. So manuscripts that tend to have the same textual variants, they're grouped together. So we have these different text types, Alexandrian, Byzantine, Western, and then other text types, which is just a catch-all for those manuscripts that don't fall neatly into the other three categories. I'll talk more about those as, as we go along, especially if I get to the, the King James only dispute. I also gave you uh, some resources that we have available to us. We have, the, for the Greek text of the New Testament, we have the blue one, and we also have the red one. The blue one is the Nestle Aland. New Greek New Testament. It's now in his 28th edition. Bob still has, you still have number one? Two. No, two. The Bible is old too, so that's not, that's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and then the, the, the red one, the, the the one that's produced by UBS, United Bible Societies. It's now in its fifth edition. And then I, I gave you some resources for, for textual... Oh, I, I talked about the, the letters, the A, B, C, D, which just gives us the, the level of confidence that scholars have in a particular textual variant. They have to decide which textual variant they think is most likely the original. And sometimes they're very confident. They give that an A rating. And sometimes they're B, C, or D. There's a very high degree of doubt. So they let you know whether they're very confident or not very confident in, in their choice. And for textual variants, we have a 
Bruce Metzger's book, which is the, uh, a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. And then we have um, Philip Comfort's book, New Testament Text and Translation Commentary, which I made extensive use of as I was preparing for this. I've never looked at so many textual variants before. Usually when I, when I study textual variants, it's within the context of a particular passage that I'm studying. But for this, I was looking at textual variant after textual variant. It was very interesting, very enlightening. And then I talked a little bit about the, the types of errors in the, in the New Testament manuscripts. Accidental errors and intentional errors. Um, the accidental errors included faulty word division, Homeo teluton, which is a similar ending. That's where, in looking back and forth between the manuscript that he's copying and his copy, the, the scribe, the copyist, loses his place and he leaves out something. That's, that's what happens there. And then there's apography, which is when a copyist should have written a, a letter or word twice and he only wrote it once. And dictography is just the opposite. He should have only written it once, but he wrote it twice. Uh, metathesis, that's just simply uh, switching letters around, you know. The letters are supposed to be in this place and you have them switched around. And then eticism or eticism, confusing vowel sounds. That would happen when one person was reading a manuscript and other people were copying what, he's, what he said, what he read. And sometimes what the speaker said and what the copyist thought he heard are two different things. So that's a type of error. Intentional errors, liturgical changes. Sometimes passages were changed to make them more suitable for a worship service. Elimination of apparent discrepancies. Sometimes the copyist would say, oh, we can't have that. That's a discrepancy, so I better change that. Well, it wasn't really a discrepancy, but he thought it was, so he changed it. Harmonization of parallel passages, that happens often with the New Testament, with the, with the Gospels, I should say, where a copyist is copying one of the Gospels and he remembers what it says in the other Gospel, and so he, he changes the one that he's working on to make it more nearly parallel the other Gospel. So there's that tendency to harmonize. That, that also happens with, with the epistles of Paul, where a copyist is copying one of the epistles of Paul, and he remembers that in one of the other epistles of Paul, it it's, reads much like this, but something is left out in this one, so he, he takes that from that epistle and puts it in this one. Conflation is where a, copy, a copyist knows that there are textual variants, and he doesn't know which one is the right one, so he just includes them both. And then doctrinal changes, that has to do with uh, what I mentioned about... Uh, before about 1 John 5, 7. The uh, copyist wasn't trying to change the doctrine. He was just trying to make it more secure. More, He, he wasn't satisfied with the with uh, deriving things. He wanted, it, wanted a more explicit statement, so he put in 1 John 5, 7. One thing I didn't talk about was marginal notes. Sometimes a copyist would incorporate marginal notes by a previous copyist into the text. So what would happen is a copyist is, is making a copy and he makes a marginal note. And then another copyist comes along later and says, hmm, is that really a marginal note 
or did the previous copyist, did he intend that that should be in the text, but he forgot and left it out, so he wrote it in the margin. Maybe I should include it in the text. Well, in that way, he put something into the text that wasn't there to begin with. A good example of that is John 5, 4. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context for this. Now, there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And this is, this is from the King James. And then, verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was, was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. That's what the King James Version says. But if you look at the, at the modern translations, such as the ESV, you will see that we have verse 2, verse 3, and then verse 5. There's no verse 4. Because scholars have determined that this verse 4 was at one time a marginal note. It didn't belong in the text, but at some point a copyist thought, well, readers are going to have a, have a hard time understanding what's going on here, so I'd better put in this marginal note to explain it to them what's happening. And then a later copyist saw that marginal note and he put that in the text. Now notice that the Bible is not saying that this actually happened, but that it was the common belief. So um, the, the pagans had their own, their own ideas about this. Uh, Asclepius was the Greco-Roman god of healing, and there were 400 Asclepions throughout the Roman Empire, healing centers. And the pagans believed that the god Asclepius went down and stirred up the waters, and then whoever went in there was healed. Now, the Jewish people had changed the, the, the idea a little bit because they only believed in one god, so they didn't believe that a, a god went down in the water. They said an angel did. So, once again, you, see, you can see how that marginal note later became incorporated into the text, and that's why we have it in the, in the King James Version. <clears throat> Often, if you're reading a commentary, they'll call that a gloss. Mm -hmm. And if I remember right, the person who probably made the note was a glossator. Yeah. So when it gets put in, you'll be reading a commentary and say, well, this is a gloss. And what we know then mm -hmm. is it probably started out in the margin. Yep. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That is. Yep. Okay. So that's your word for today, gloss. <laughs> So, given that there are textual variants, how do scholars decide which textual variant is most likely the original reading? We don't have to just throw up our hands and say, I don't know, this manuscript says this, and this manuscript says this. How do we know which one was the original reading? Well, there are methods and there are procedures that scholars use to determine which of the textual variants was most likely the original reading. They consider the external evidence, and they consider 
the internal evidence, okay? What, what are those things? What is external evidence and what is internal evidence? Well, the external evidence would include thing like, things like the age of the manuscript. So is this textual variant found in manuscripts from the 4th century, or is it not found until manuscripts from the 7th century or the 10th century? The age of the manuscripts is, is a very important piece of evidence. The grouping of the manuscripts. What we're talking about here is text types. The Alexandrian, the, the Western, the Byzantine. Text which, manuscripts which tend to read in a, in a particular way and tend to have particular textual variants. They don't all have exactly the same textual variants, but most of the time they do. And then the, the distribution of the manuscripts. Does this textual variant come from manuscripts that are found all over the, the Roman world, the, the Mediterranean region? Or does it only come, is it only found in manuscripts that come from a particular area? So the, the distribution of the manuscripts is important. And the, the habits of the scribes. Now, I've talked a lot about this, about things that scribes tend to do when they're, when they're copying these New Testament documents. So I don't need to go through again all of the, all of the errors of seeing and hearing and copying that, that uh, copyists go through. And then the peculiarities, both stylistic and doctrinal, of the author. Now, there's no, there's no contradiction or conflict between the various writers of the New Testament, but different writers have different emphases. Paul is, is going to talk more about grace. James is going to talk about, more about the importance of living a Christian life. So they have, they have different emphases. And those are considered when looking at textual variants. And, of course, the stylistic changes, the differences. Um, Paul is, is more educated, so he's going to use more polished Greek than, say, John the fisherman. Okay. Bob Slade. To remember the factors that are involved, the external factors and the internal factors, a good mnemonic device, a good memory device, is the acronym BOBSLED. You're, you live in Minnesota, so you can remember BOBSLED, right? In fact, even if you lived in Jamaica, you could remember BOBSLED. <laughs> the, first bar, the first part of BOBSLED, the BOB part, that's the external evidence. The, the second part of BOBSLED, the SLED part, that's the internal evidence. So, the external evidence, Bob, stands for best, oldest, and broadest. And the, the second part, the sled part, well, let, let, let's look at um, each of those first, and then we'll look at the sled part. What, what exactly do we mean by best? Well, let me give you an illustration. Let's say that we have 10 manuscripts that have one particular textual variant, and we have 20 manuscripts that have another textual variant. You can't just count the manuscripts and say, well, 20 is more than 10, so let's go with the majority. It doesn't work that way. Um, 
With manuscripts, as with people, the majority isn't always right. If of that 20, 12 of them can be traced to one single source, then you don't really have 10 and 20. You have 10 and 8. So there are some principles for determining the best manuscript evidence. Agreement of two text types signifies an earlier reading. If two of the text types agree, they have the same textual variant, that's an indication that that is the earlier reading, the, the original reading. Secondly, agreement of significant papyri and unzeals in the Alexandrian and or Western text indicates an early reading. If you have a, an, an agreement between the, the significant papyri and unseals in the Alexandrian and or the Western text, then it's a, probably a pretty good indication that you have the original reading. The existence of a reading in only the Byzantine text, regardless of the number of manuscripts, remember that the, the Byzantine-type manuscripts account for 70% of the texts that have come down to us today. But the existence of a reading in only the Byzantine text likely indicates a later reading. Because the, the Byzantine texts were, were a later development. The, the earlier papyri and, and unseals have the, usually have the Alexandrian and sometimes the Western text. So the oldest. This, this is quite obvious. A textual variant that appears in an earlier manuscripts is preferred over a textual variant which only begins to appear in later manuscripts. That makes sense, right? If that uh, text, particular texture variant doesn't show up until later texts, then it's probably not the original. Now, there, are, there is an exception to that. Usually it's the case that older is better, but there are a few times when scholars have decided that a later text preserves an older reading. I won't go through all of these right now, but since there aren't very many of these, I'll, I'll, I'll give you these and I'll have this, uh, this uh, PowerPoint put up on, on the website. But these are just a few of the, the cases where scholars have decided that even though it's a later manuscript, it does preserve an older reading. So there are a few of those. But generally, it's true that older texts are preferred. Older readings are preferred. Now, what about broadest? Well, a textual variant which appears in manuscripts with a wide geographic distribution is preferred over a textual variant which only appears in manuscripts from one area. So if the, manu if the textual variant only appears in manuscripts from one local region, then it's probably not the original. It doesn't appear throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the Mediterranean world. Now, the internal evidence, the, the sled part. Internal evidence. We look for the shortest, like the author's style, the one that explains the others, the textual variant that explains how the others could come into being, and finally, the textual variant that is most difficult. 
right, the shortest. A shorter reading is preferred over a longer reading. It's considered more likely that a copyist would add information to a verse than that he would leave out information from a verse. So it's more likely that, that a copyist would add information so that the shorter reading is generally the one that is preferred, considered, considered the original. Now, the exception, there is an exception to that, too, uh, with homo, homo toluton. That, I explained that to you last time. That's where a copyist is copying, 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 and he comes down to here. And he's looking back and forth between the original and, the, and his copy, and he comes down to here, and when his eyes return to the copy, instead of tr- returning here where they should, they see that same word further down on the page, and that he starts there and copies everything on from there. But he omits this portion in between. So that, that's one case where the shorter reading isn't the preferred reading. And that's apparently what happened in 1 John 2.23 in some of the manuscripts. You see, it says, no one denies, who denies the Son has the Father, and then further on down in the page, we see has the Father again, so his eyes went down to there, and he left out the words in between. So that's one case where, where the shorter reading isn't the better. But generally, it is true that the shorter reading is the better, is, is the preferred. Like the author's style, the preferred reading is that which is more in harmony with the usage of the author elsewhere. Now, obviously, in order to make this assessment, you have to be really familiar with the author's work. So if you're going to make a, a decision about, well, this sounds more like something the apostle would say than this does. Well, in order to make that assessment, you have to be really familiar with the writings of the apostle Paul in Greek. But the, the scholars who study these things make it their life's work. I mean, they, they're, they're studying throughout most of their adult life and so they become very familiar with the, the writings of a particular New Testament author. The reading which explains the others, the reading which appears to have given rise to the others is preferred over them. That makes sense, doesn't it? That If you have several textual variants and there's one that explains how the others could have arisen, that one is probably the original. So I gave you this example last time about in some manuscripts it talks about in Isaiah the prophet. In some manuscripts it talks about in the prophets and notably in the King James. So apparently the copyist saw this where it said in Isaiah the prophet and he recognized that this passage that's referred to is really a composite of two prophets, Isaiah and Malachi. So he said, mm, I can't, we can't have that. It just says Isaiah the prophet. It doesn't say anything about Malachi. So I'll just change it to in the prophets. Well, he, he didn't understand that in the first century, the Jewish convention was if you had a major prophet and a minor prophet, you referred to the major prophet. So he didn't really need to change that, but he thought he did. Were you going to say something? No, I just agree. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, I, I don't mind agreement at all. 
difficult, a more difficult reading is preferred over an easier reading. Is it is considered more likely that a copyist would change a verse to make it easier to understand than that he would change a verse to make it more difficult to understand. That makes sense once again. That uh, if you have two readings, a difficult to understand reading and an easy to understand reading, the, the difficult reading, the more difficult reading is generally the preferred reading. And I'll, I'll refer you to that same example again of, of Isaiah the prophet or in the prophets. It's easy to see why somebody would change it to in the prophets, but it, it really doesn't make sense to say that originally said in the prophets and somebody changed it to in Isaiah the prophet. That's, that doesn't make sense, does it? So that the more difficult reading is the, the preferred reading. So those are the principles for determining which textual variant is the preferred one. The best way to acquaint you with textual variants and to help you understand how the scholars evaluate textual variants is just to walk through you, to walk with you through some examples of textual variants. The first two textual variants I want to look at are the biggies. Most textual variants only affect one or two verses. But these first two that we're going to look at affect entire passages. Some manuscripts have these passages, some don't. So the question arises, should these passages be considered part of the original autographs or not? So the first one we're going to look at is what is called the longer ending of Mark. So if you read the ending of the, the Gospel of Mark in the King James Version, it ends with these verses in, in chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now when Jesus was risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons, seven devils. And she went and told them that had men with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Now, 
as I said, some texts have this passage and some do not. Should it be in considered part of the original autographs? You will find that modern translations either do not have this passage and they put it in as a footnote or they set it off in brackets to show that it was not part of the original. So why do they do that? Well, there's good evidence for excluding this passage from the book of Mark. The most important Alexandrian manuscripts do not have the passage. Some manuscripts that do contain the passage mark it off. They use asterisks or or other markings to indicate that this was not part of the original. Some manuscripts have an alternative shorter reading, an alternative shorter ending, or combine this with the longer ending. So even those manuscripts which do have the longer ending, sometimes they combine it with another shorter ending, or sometimes they just have the shorter ending and don't have this longer ending. One manuscript adds an entire paragraph to the longer ending between verses 14 and 15. So this constant changing and shifting seems to indicate that this was not part of the original autograph. It was added later on. There are some other problems with, with this passage in Mark, as it is in the King James Bible. Verse 12 says that Jesus appeared in a different form. What does that mean? When you, uh, so these, these uh, verses that I'm going to show you here, they don't seem to jive with what we read about Jesus and his resurrection elsewhere. When you consider the, the extreme care that was taken by other gospel writers, that they wanted to ensure that everyone should know that Jesus rose physically from the dead, the fact that this says he appeared in a different form, it's, it seems out of place and inconsistent with what we read elsewhere. In verse 14, it says that Jesus appeared to 11 disciples and that he reproached them. Well, the first problem that we see with this verse is that, remember, it, we are told elsewhere in the Gospels that when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, Thomas was not present. So there were 10, not 11, right? But this, but this verse says that Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples. And it says that he reproached them. That seems out of place and inconsistent with what we are told elsewhere about Jesus' appearances to his disciples after the resurrection. And then this is the real kicker. Verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18 seem to promise that the signs given here are for all believers. All believers. So is it saying that all believers are going to take up poisonous snakes and drink poison and not suffer any harm? I I know that, that Bob has mentioned to me that uh, some of the uh, so-called modern-day apostles use, use verses from this, this passage in the end of Mark to justify their apostleship. As a matter of fact, just recently I decided to 
re-engage a few debates just to keep myself current with what they're doing. Yeah. Their first place they go to prove their new apostolic reformation or what other version of it is the ending of Mark. Mm -hmm. And there are groups, Pentecostal groups, that literally do have snake yep. pits, yep. and you have to prove your faith by, I don't know when whose turn it is to put their hand in there, but I saw in a newspaper not long ago, somebody died at one of those meetings. And that's all based on this ending of Mark. But what happened was I said, I don't accept the longer ending of Mark. I don't think it was written by the Mark that wrote the rest of Mark. Mm -hmm. Then they went crazy. You know, if you accept that longer ending of Mark, you have to look at inconsistencies in the Bible because I've got 1 Corinthians twelve twenty nine, where Paul says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healings and do not speak with tongues. You know what I mean? So, in other words, to, to accept that longer, and that's what you're pointing out, Dana, is that those things there verse 12, 14, and 17, and 18, those amount to contradictions. And it's the only place that that contradiction exists. So you have to reject that, right? Yeah, verses 17 and 18 seem to promise that all believers can count on being able to handle poisonous snakes and drink. Right. And when Eric preached Mark... If you're really a Christian and you really have faith, you should be able to do these things. Right. And when Eric preached it, he did a great job ending at verse 8 and showing how that was a very reasonable ending for how Mark wrote Mark. The the next lengthy passage that I want to look at real quickly is what is called the Pericope de Adultera, the, the story of the narrative of the woman taken in adultery. So in the King James Version, it reads, And every man went into his own house. And then starting in verse 1 of chapter 8 in in the King James Version, it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he had heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted him up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by that, their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So this 
narrative about the woman taken in adultery is in some manuscripts, but not in others. And you will find that, once again, in modern translations, it's either set off in brackets, indicating that it was not in the original autographs, or it's in a footnote. Once again, there is good evidence for the exclusion of this passage. It's omitted by a diverse group of ancient manuscripts, manuscripts from various parts of the Roman Empire, uh, manuscripts of various text types. Some manuscripts that do contain the passage mark it off with asterisks or whatever to indicate that it's probably not original. And here's the real clicker. Uh, kicker. The passage appears in different places. Now we're, we're used to seeing it in the King James after verse seven, after verse seven fifty two, but in some manuscripts it occurs after verse seven thirty six. Other manuscripts after seven thirty four, and uh, in other manuscripts after uh, chapter twenty one verse twenty five, and in one manuscript. It doesn't occur in John at all. It occurs, occurs in the Gospel of Luke after chapter 21, verse 38. So the fact that this passage is moving around indicates that scribes, copyists, were just trying to find a place to make it fit, that it wasn't in the original. Now, I would, I would hasten to add, however, that just because this story, this narrative, was not in the original that doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. It, it could be that this, this story was passed on by word of mouth for generations and then copyists later put it into the text. So it appears that it was not part of the original Gospel of John or Luke, but it could be that it, it, the incident really did happen during the ministry of Christ. So I, I think we'll just do a couple more short ones here. And then we can next time we can pick up where we leave off. The next one that I would want to consider is Matthew five twenty two. But I say this is the King James version. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. That's the King James Version. This is the English Standard Version. But I say to you that whoever is angry, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now notice that in the ESV, it says everyone who is angry with his brother. In the King James, it says everyone who is angry with his brother without a cause. So it has that qualifier in there. So should that, some manuscripts have that and some don't. Should that be in there or shouldn't it? So, so we have these, these two different versions. One saying everyone who is angry with his brother without cause, and the other one just whoever is angry with his brother. So the King James and the New King James, which is 
which generally follows the, the textual variants that are used in the King James. It's just uh, updated language, so it's not, that, not the uh, 1611 English. But most modern translations, the RSV, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the NLT, the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the Net Bible, just say everyone being angry with his brother. The earliest manuscripts from, from the second century do not include this, this, this phrase without cause. So it, it, it seems quite obvious that this is an attempt to soften Jesus' bold assertion that everyone who is angry with his brother, they, they changed it to say, well, if you have a good cause for being angry with your brother, it's okay. But Jesus seems to have said, it's wrong to be angry with your brother. There isn't any justification for it. So, that, so this isn't, it seems like to be an attempt to justify anger if it is for a good reason. So it appears that this is not in the original. The, ne- the next one I want to look at is Matthew 6.13. And, and I talked to you about this before. Uh, the Lord's Prayer. At the end of the Lord's Prayer in the King James Version, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But if you look at modern translations such as the ESV, it ends the model prayer by simply saying, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So that doxology and amen are not in the original apparently. So, some manuscripts have it, that doxology, and some don't. Now, of, of the more modern translations, even, even the NASB and the, and the whole Christian Standard Bible do have it, but they, they do indicate that it's probably not in the original. One of the things that tells us that it probably was not in the original is that there are six different variations in the manuscripts of this doxology. So some manuscripts will say um, yours is the kingdom and glory, and some will say yours is the kingdom and the power, and just every different combination that you can imagine. And some don't have that doxology, they just add an amen. So the fact that there are several different versions of this ending of of the Lord's Prayer uh, tell us that it wasn't part of the original. And so, um, you know, let's, let's finish with Matthew anyway. Matthew seventeen twenty one. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Seventeen twenty one. So th- this is an incident that happened just after Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. His... Uh, a man had brought his son to Jesus' disciples to have them cast out a demon and heal his son, but they weren't able to. So he's, he's asking the Lord, he's asking Jesus to have mercy on his son, for he's a lunatic, he's sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him, to his, brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. They couldn't help him. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, 
and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. There's, our, there's the verse in question. Verse 21. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. I just wanted to include that verse to, to show you that we're transitioning into another, another passage, another Pergamy. But if we look at this same passage in the ESV, you will note that it goes from verse 20 to verse 22. There's no verse 21. Because scholars do not think that verse 21, this, this kind go, goes out not but by prayer and fasting. They don't think that that was in the original. The, the, ES, uh, the NASB and the, H, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible do include it, but they put it in brackets indicating that it's not original. The earliest manuscripts don't have that verse. And it is thought that uh, it comes from uh, Mark 9.29, where, once again, a scribe is trying to, to harmonize the passage in Matthew with the passage in Mark. So I think we'll pick up where we left off. We'll, we finished some textual variants in Matthew. Next time we'll... We'll look at some textual variants in Mark and so on. So I think that's where we'll stop. Um, would you like to close this in prayer? Mr. Fredrickson. Eric the Younger. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was busy reading. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. I, I was awake, though. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that, um, that your word is sufficient for everything and that uh, if we are faithful and that if we uh, appeal to your grace, Lord, that you have tremendous wisdom for us and you have the, the gospel of salvation for us. Help us to always understand your word. Help us to uh, share your word with others and help us to let your word light our, our hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus, amen.